Amen. Thank you, choir. You're going to have to get more chairs, Aaron. It's like you're running out of space up there. That's great. It's good to hear. Everybody can come on. That's right. Is it more? I thought you were making cuts. No? You're not having cuts? You still want more? Okay. All right. If you're interested in joining the choir, come join. I feel like, you know, again, summer's kind of winding down. Everybody's back in town. It's wonderful to have uh, a good crowd in here and a good crowd in the choir and uh, just excited about what God's doing in the life of our church. You know, it's been a, a hard couple of years in a lot of ways, but uh, excited for the future of what's going to happen on this corner in the next 80 years of Woodmont's life. We're going to continue our series today in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, you know, ever since chapter 11, uh, Paul's been talking to this church about spiritual gifts and how they're very confused about spiritual gifts. Uh, our life group leader, Leellen Phillips, passed out a paper copy today of a spiritual gifts test because uh, people have a lot of confusion when it comes to these gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to believers for the building up of the church. You can find all those tests online. You can find lots of books and blog posts and different podcasts about spiritual gifts. People still don't understand all that there is to it. And the one that gets debated probably the most, of course, especially in our circles, is the gift of speaking in tongues, glossolalia in Greek. Uh, when I was talking to Dr. Frank Lewis about preaching 1 Corinthians 12, he said, now, you don't believe the gift of speaking in tongues, you know, is a thing anymore, do you? And I was like, yeah, I do. And he was like, uh-oh. <laughs> People who are Bible-believing Christians have disagreements about this gift. And that's okay because it's a very tertiary issue. It's, it's not a salvific gospel issue. So we are free as brothers in Christ to disagree about it. But there's still a lot of confusion about this uh, gift. When I was a youth pastor in Alabama, uh, there was a big church that was growing near us in our community, and some of our students would go on retreats with their friends who were part of this other church, and they'd come back, and I'd say, hey, how was that retreat with this church, you know? And they'd say, oh, it was great. We played ultimate Frisbee, and we ate s'mores, and got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we played flag football, and I was like, wait, 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 did you... Did you say you got baptized in the Holy Spirit? They were like, yeah, guess what? I can speak in tongues now. And I was like, wow, okay. Uh, I had to do some research into what this church was teaching. And they actually had on their website, I don't want to disparage, I probably shouldn't disparage any other church. It takes all kinds of churches. But they had levels of spirituality, like classes that you could take. There was 101, which was kind of like Christianity for dummies, you know. Then there was 201, and then there was 301, and by the time you completed 401, you got baptized in the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. If you graduated 401, you, you had to basically speak in tongues or you weren't really uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that is not what the Bible says, okay? That is not what we're going to teach here. We're going to try to be as faithful as we can to Scripture, Again, we can disagree about whether the gifts of tongues has ceased or not, and that's okay. But nowhere in the Bible is there that kind of spiritual gift progression of levels of spirituality. Speaking in tongues, like all the spiritual gifts, was never 
meant to, to be a sign that you had achieved some kind of spiritual status. No, no spiritual gift is a marker that you have made it, that you have arrived as a mature Christian. All the other gifts, including speaking in tongues, are meant for the edification of the church, to build up the church. But again, the, the church in Corinth was a very young church. It had a lot of Im immature believers. There were a lot of new converts who were still more Corinthian than they were Christian, if you know what I mean. They were baby Christians who were confused about a lot of things, including how to operate as a body of Christ in worship and, and utilize their newfound spiritual gifts. They were, by God's grace, faithful and obedient to gather together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday mornings, but they were making a mess of it. Probably the harshest indictment that Paul gives against the Corinthian church is in chapter 11, where he says, when you guys meet together, you're actually doing more harm than good. Like, you should just stop meeting if you're going to meet poorly, because it's not building up the church. In fact, it's breaking down the church. So Paul has a very serious pastoral concern for this little flock that he planted and he wants them to conduct their weekly gatherings in such a way that follows the pattern that he set up in chapter 13, a more excellent way, he calls it, the way of love, the way of selfless agape love. In their worship services, that same love should prevail. So let's stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for today from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25 here. Now the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 
Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, at our youth camp last week, after our worship services, we had some time just for our group to kind of process and, and debrief what we learned in the service. And our, our current youth ministry, you may have noticed, skews toward the younger side, right? We have a lot of middle schoolers, uh, my son included in that group. And it seemed like as I was talking with our students night after night and hearing what they were processing and, and, and learning uh, throughout the week, a theme began to emerge, for, for me at least, and for I think others in our group, of just maturation, of, of just growth. These, these students were asking really hard questions that are really important. If you're going to own this faith called Christianity for yourself, you have to ask the hard questions and decide, do I really believe this? Or is this just something that Miss Rachel taught me when I was a kid? Is this something that my parents just taught me? Is this something that my grandparents just taught me? Or do I really believe this deep down? So what I was seeing uh, throughout the week was these young students especially uh, growing in their faith and just growing up, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 11, I kept thinking about this verse throughout the week. We read it last week. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, they did not give up all their childish ways, I can guarantee you. And there were several times when I had to yell, grow up, stop throwing that, whatever it was. Our students, though, have been wrestling with these, these natural kind of questions that come as you grow from childhood to adolescence and on into adulthood. It's a maturation process that they're evaluating the truths of Christianity. And really, the church in Corinth was in a similar situation. They were kind of like a bunch of middle schoolers all together. Paul is pleading with them, if you really want to do this Christianity thing, if you really want to be a healthy church, if you really want to follow Jesus Christ together as his disciples, then it's going to take some work. You're going to have to make some changes 
to your worship services, to your, your gatherings, to your church structure, and most of all, to your own hearts. When the church gathers on the Lord's day, it's a time that we need for our building up, for our edification. It should be one of those things that we leave here saying, oh, I needed that. I needed that encouragement. I needed that teaching. I needed God's word. I needed the spirit moving in worship. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in this chapter. It's don't waste your time when you gather together is what he's saying. So I've called our outline for today that the church may be built up. Mature disciples worshiping together. Mature disciples worshiping together. Apparently the, the situation in, in Corinth was that some immature believers were taking over the, the worship services by displaying their newfound gifts uh, in such a way that pointed to themselves, in such a way that made uh, them kind of a show-off, especially the gift of speaking in tongues. I can speak in more tongues than you. I can speak louder tongues than you. I can speak longer tongues than you. I mean, all these kind of things that really just pointed to themselves. You had a few individuals who apparently wanted to be the, the center of attention rather than build up the whole body. You probably noticed this theme throughout 1 Corinthians of Paul trying to get these Corinthian Christians to defer to others for the, for the sake of others, to discipline themselves and give up their own rights for the sake of others. We've seen that all throughout chapter 8. He talked about not eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, even though that's not a sin. He said, don't do it for the sake of your weaker brothers and sisters, because it might cause them to stumble. In chapter 9, verse 19, he said, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Paul's like, I'm, nobody's my boss except for Jesus Christ, but I've made myself the servant of everyone in order to win them. Verse 22, just a few verses later in chapter 9, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Chapter 10, verses 31, 32, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Even though, you know, you're right with your truth, don't go blabbing it to the, the Jews or to the Greeks in such a way that will be uh, unwinsome. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of Christians, people who claim to be Christians in our world, who are some of the least winsome people I've ever met. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of love that chapter 13 shows us. All of chapter 11 is about this kind of deference to, to the, the weaker brother with our head coverings. Uh, Alan Wharton did a great job with, with that tough passage and how we partake in the Lord's Supper. It's a you first mentality, you first mentality. Now Paul applies the same idea to how the Corinthian Christians use their, their gifts, especially gifts of utterance, gifts of speaking in worship services. You might think that Paul would just say, hey, stop it. Stop speaking in tongues. It's not that cool. It's not that important. Just stop doing it. But that's not what he says at all. He, he makes it clear that spiritual gifts are necessary in the church. That's point number one on your outline. Paul makes it clear. We need these gifts. He doesn't say, he says, I, I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
I speak in tongues all the time. It's important. We need these spiritual gifts in order to have a healthy, vital church in which the Holy Spirit is moving. When we did our study in Acts a couple years ago, the whole point of the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit provides this power to the church that makes the church an unstoppable force for the Lord's kingdom throughout the earth. That's what we see. Without the Holy Spirit, then we're all just in huge trouble. We're wasting our time. Look at verse one. Pursue love, agape, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. When love is the goal and love is the process of the goal, the spiritual gifts are absolutely vital in building up the church and bringing about spiritual growth. Too many churches, though, rely on the cleverness of their staff or of their lay leaders to try to make things happen, to bring about spiritual growth. We try to coerce it and force it. But again, if the Holy Spirit's not empowering what we're doing here, then we're just spinning our wheels. We absolutely need our people to utilize their God-given gifts in church. In, in service to our, our church family, in service to our community, in service to the world. Paul's not saying to stop speaking in tongues. In verse 5, uh, the beginning of verse 5, he says, I want you all to speak in tongues. The Greek really says, I'm happy for you all to speak in tongues. That's not the problem. It's great that they you know, have this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that they're able to communicate with the Lord in this intimate way. That's awesome. Great. We need people who are filled with the Spirit like this in our church. But look at the rest of verse 5. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. That leads us to point number two in our outline. Content is king. Is this a marketing thing, I think, Jamie? Okay, you've heard this before. Apparently, according to the in internet, uh, it says the, the quote, content is king, is originally from an essay Microsoft founder Bill Gates <laughs> wrote in 1996. In it, he describes the future of the internet as a marketplace for content. The phrase content is king is not new, but because of the increased focus on content marketing strategies, I don't know what that means, you'll have to tell me later, the quote is used very often. Apparently, Bill Gates was right. It worked out pretty well for him. Uh, you know, search engines and those kind of things on the internet aren't much good if there's not meaningful content to be found with those search engines. And, and what we see here is that prophecy is a greater gift than tongues because prophecy brings an intelligible word, a word people can understand, a word from God to bear upon God's people. You know, without meaningful content, the internet is worthless, and without meaningful content, our faith is also worthless. We have real doctrines that are to be known and believed. We need that content. And so prophecy, therefore, is a superior gift. We need the, the truth. When we say prophecy, some of you may think like, you know, uh, like fortune-telling, kind of future-telling stuff. That's not what prophecy means. Biblical gift of prophecy means uh, bringing that intelligible word. It means bringing, uh, really speaking the truth is what prophecy means. 
being able to cut through the lies of this world. Our world is constantly bombarding us with falsehoods. Prophecy cuts through all those lies to speak the truth prophetically. We need that prophetic word to, to, to cut through the messages that we're constantly hearing that are wrong and destructive. And uh, we need the prophecy to bring us a word of life-giving truth to show us what is really right and good and true. That's what prophecy does, and it only works by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need that desperately. And Paul uses all these analogies here in the second part uh, to make the point that intelligible speech is better, is prefer preferable to those kinds of utterances that are only known to God. In verse 6, he says, what if a preacher only spoke in tongues? You think I'm hard to follow now? What if I just used a, a special prayer language up here for 30 minutes? Then he says in verse 7 that even instruments use different notes that are distinguishable from one another in order to make music. In verse 8, he says, what if a trumpet call, you know, is not distinguishable and, and troops don't know whether they should advance or retreat? It has to make a different kind of noise. Content is king. We have to know with our minds what God wants us to know. And it's not enough to hear God's revelation and just know the words, right? We have to understand it. Point number three on your outline is that comprehending the content is key. A lot of you, I know, grew up going to youth camp like I did. I think I've, I've been to youth camp 20 summers of my 40 summers on earth. I love it. I love youth camp. It's exhausting, but I love it. And, and maybe it's because everybody, you know, back there has only slept for five hours uh, a night and eaten camp food for four days. But uh, it, it always seems like when we're at youth camp that worship is just so emotional, right? You have cry night on the last night of youth camp where everybody just cries and you hug each other and you, you know, you, you tell your sibling that you love them and then, you know, two days later you're, you're back throwing things at them and, and pinching each other and, and hurting each other. Uh, that's, that always seems to happen at youth camp. This emotion, you know, by the, by the last night, it seems like everybody's ready to get saved again. They've been saved six times, you know, all over. And uh, that, that always happens at youth camp because of that emotion. And emotion's not bad. There's a place for emotion, okay? I'm not just making fun of emotion. Emotion's not a bad thing. But I think we all know that purely emotional moments don't really last. They don't leave a lasting impact on us because nothing's really changed. All we did was have an emotional moment. Without real commitment, we have to understand that, 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 and believe truth that we're encountering in those moments in order for them to really change our lives, in order for them to really affect us from the inside out. That's why Paul says in verses 14 and 15 here, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit. Yes, it's a spiritual thing, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit. Yes, it's emotional, and you should bring your heart to bear when you worship but I will sing with my mind also. I think this is kind of what Jesus was talking about when he says that we will worship in spirit and in truth. Again, emotion's not bad. I don't want us just to be the, the, the frozen chosen that just stands there you know, in, in worship and is not emotive at all. We, we need to feel the Holy Spirit in us and respond accordingly. That's okay. 
But neither do we just want to be one of those kids at youth camp that makes commitments that they don't really mean uh, in those emotional moments. Here's the thing. God gives us spiritual gifts for a reason that's bigger than us. He gives us these gifts for a reason beyond ourselves. So point number four is that spiritual gifts are necessary for the sake of those outside the church. What we do in here should benefit those who aren't in here. It's not for our own benefit, it's for those outside the church. When we view spiritual gifts as being something that's primarily for us, we're acting like little kids. We're selfish and self-centered like a small child. In verse 20, Paul says, brothers and sisters, don't be children in your thinking. Be innocent, be infants in evil, sure, but in your thinking, be mature. Again, there were several times last week where I did exhort our students, including maybe especially my own student, to grow up. Grow up. I'll spare you the details of why I said that. But Paul tells us here, we are to be childlike in innocence and in, in wonder, in awe of who God is. Childlike is okay, but not being childish. There's an important difference between being childlike in our faith and being childish. Childish Christians think that speaking in tongues is cool. It sounds awesome. I love it when that guy speaks in tongues. It's so neat to see. Mature Christians are concerned for people who feel left out, who feel alienated by people who are, are using some kind of private prayer language or who are uh, speaking in tongues without an interpretation. Mature Christians are, are concerned about people who are outside these walls. There's an evangelistic responsibility for us as Christians, especially those who are worship leaders. We have to think about how those outside the church might perceive what is happening inside the church. But what if the outsider comes and hears God's living word proclaimed in song, proclaimed in prayer, proclaimed in preaching? What if they hear God's truth clearly and powerfully from their head to their hearts. Verse 24 and 25 show us a very different picture. One person says, they're crazy, they're nuts. This person says, God is among you. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God. That's a motive, isn't it? and declare that God is really among you. If an outsider came here today, would they say God is really among you? That's something that we need to be considering every week when we gather. Let me close, five quick key takeaways here, okay? Five key takeaways. Number one, grown-up Christians are eager for spiritual gifts. They desire the gifts, but they use them for the greater good, not for themselves. I wanna be a grown-up Christian who's able to use my gifts for others, not for myself. Number two, grown-up Christians exercise their gifts in love for the building up of the church. How many times in that passage, I think four different times, Paul says, for building up the church, for edification. I love that word. You know what it means? An edifice is a strong structure, right? All you architects, we have like 12 architects in our church. You know that to build up a church, to make it stronger, how important that is. And we should be using our gifts for the mutual edification of one another. 
Number three, grown-up Christians engage their hearts as well as their minds as they worship in spirit and in truth. They praise and they pray with their deepest spiritual being, but also with their minds engaged. Number four, grown-up Christians understand that order and structure and planning are all important in the life of a healthy church. I, I'd rather, I'm kind of more of an emotive guy. I'm kind of a right brain person. I, I got a big heart. I'd rather do just the fun, emotive kind of things, but I'm grateful for people like Marcus Bowler and, and like all of our engineers that we have in this church who like order and structure and all our scientists that we have who help keep us uh, you know, from going off the rails like I probably would. I need, we need those people as well. Number five, grown-up Christians understand that church is not primarily for us. It's not something you come to like a consumer. We're not a provider of religious goods and services. We are the body of Christ, and we exist for the healing of the nations. That's why we are the body of Christ. We must avoid simply becoming a holy huddle or a, a spiritual country club. Let's be the kind of church where people come and they say, wow, God is here. God is doing something here, because he is. Let's be grown-up Christians who engage the Lord together with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the negative example of the church in Corinth. God, forgive us when we have acted like immature Christians. Oh Lord, we pray now that you would grow us up, that we would make a commitment to you to spiritual maturity, to be mature Christians who understand that the way of love compels us to use all of our God-giving gifts for others. Help us to, to not be so selfish. Help us to not be so prideful that we wanna use our gifts to elevate ourselves, but may we always use our gifts humbly and sacrificially for the sake of others. God, I pray that as we learn to be more selfless, as we grow up and mature, that you would continue to use each member here to build up Woodmont Baptist Church. God, we pray for all those evangelical, Bible-believing churches in Nashville and around the world, that they would be built up in love. And that's not something that we just ask you to do, God. We know that you want to use each one of us to do that. So we pray that you would let us put our shoulders to the plow, that we would be able to encourage one another, that we would hold each other accountable, that we would be able to disciple one another, that we would pray for one another, and that we would love one another in tangible ways. God, I thank you for the way that I've been built up by fellow believers here at this church. I thank you for the ways that I'm seeing ministry accomplished so grateful that you are moving among our church, oh God. I pray that everyone would see it. And just like Dr. Janine Davis prayed that some people don't know about the mission house, God, people don't know about a lot of things that happen in these walls. I pray that we would hear those stories and be encouraged. Help us to, to do a good job of telling those stories and showing the world where you're at work, not so that we can get credit, not so that we can get praise, but so that you, oh God, would get all the glory. God, everything that's good that happens at Woodmont is all done by your grace and for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use us to be your hands and feet in an even greater way each and every week. 
And may anyone who comes here know that you are among us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ,